0: David Feminist my name is Megan and I'm here with my co-host Milana.
1: Hey guys today we're gonna take a step into developmental psychology in the 1930s in New York City and then after that we're gonna take a trip down to Philadelphia in the early 1900s where we're gonna learn about the sculptor of horrors. Isn't that exciting? So we're just gonna start with hey, happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate it. uh. This is not a Valentine's Day episode, is what we're prefacing this with. So. <laughs> <laughs> Which is
0: exactly why you opened with it.
1: This is not. I just wanted to say, hey. Hi, guys. Either way, it's February. And do you know what that means, Megan? Uh, what? It means Black History Month. So for this month of February, we're going to bring you some badass African-American scientists and artists that our teachers never taught us about in school. Are you excited, Megan?
0: Yeah. No, I'm looking forward. This has been fun, especially for the period that I'm looking at in like the early 1900s. First, finding a prominent woman sculptor is a little tricky, but then finding one who is also not white in America right. and actually professionally working is even tougher.
1: That's crazy. It's really hard to Yeah, get it.
0: yeah I get it. Uh, which makes it all the more impressive for the work that the person I'm about to tell you with,
1: you know, was professionally
0: working. Um,
1: I'm actually really excited. I can't wait to hear about your sculptor.
0: All right. So we are going to Philadelphia, um, kind Yay! of late 1800s. Yeah, early 1900s. And it's nice to be in Philly. That's where I used to live with Milana for quite a while until I moved away.
1: Family's where it's at
0: i know i know i still miss the soupy dumplings about a dim sum garden so it's been fun to do this week's artist Mita Warwick fuller because she also happens to be a uarts alumni
1: what that's
0: which pretty, is pretty awesome. awesome yeah what um, year did she graduate well we'll we'll get into that so jumping back in time She was born in 1877, like a pretty wealthy upper middle class family. Um, Her father ran a barber shop at Fifth and Chestnut. Her mother was like a hairdresser and a wig maker, and they both primarily catered to the, you know, the wealthy white class in Philly. So for a point growing up, she lived at 254 South 12th Street, which is now currently the gay sports bar Taboo. <laughs> yeah, I think it used to be eye candy, but then they got bought out and taboo moved over there. um so taboo was taken over, done a little bit of remodeling. So if you're ever in Philly in the neighborhood, that's where the sculptor Metawork fuller grew up. huh I know I love Philly. I love that city. The great city. <laughs> so her family is like fairly well off. Uh, her maternal grandfather was a prominent caterer and owned his own restaurant on 11th Street. He was a former West Indy slave and very active in the abolitionist movement. So he was part of the Social, Civil, and Statistical Association of the Colored People of Pennsylvania, founded in 1860 to, quote, better the moral, social, intellectual condition of Black Pennsylvanians to establish a fund for any special emergency and to act whenever Black people's civil rights were encumbered. So that sounds like the precursor to another big civil rights organization that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. Yay! So from the beginning, she is from a family that, you know, independently wealthy, you know, working and active in civil rights. And that really influenced her growing up in terms of what she, you know, was exposed to and um, kind of the attitudes of what she was going to be capable of as an adult. So she had a fairly privileged childhood. Her parents, they had a summer house in Atlantic City. They would take the train over where they had a second house and they had business there. Hmm. Um, so she got to travel up and down, you know, the East Coast growing up. She also went to integrated schools, which was a big deal. I, it, I mean, this is the late 1800s. I mean, even at that point segregated schools were viewed as like inferior in quality so her family had the means to be able to send her to you know integrated schools where she got a you know pretty good education so growing up her parents they really instilled the best in their children she was the baby of the group three older older siblings next oldest brother was you know 10 years older so i think she really got spoiled a bit you might know being the youngest sibling how oh, that can make a difference sometimes. <laughs> I mean, at yeah. the time your parents have already like you know, dealt with a few old, older kids, the youngest comes around and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's fine. I don't, I don't mm, care.
1: I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, I was spoiled. I'm not gonna lie. But at the same time, I was put in a bubble. So I, mean,
0: you know, to an extent, she was too.
1: But anyways, like, I had to be the one to like break out and be the rebellious one. <laughs> 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 Uh my brother never. He was like perfection and I was the one that was like, mm, I'm going to do this thing. You guys are going to be really mad, but I'm going to do it. Yeah, but <laughs>
0: I mean, typically I feel like parents tend to be like a little bit more strict like with their their first kid. Oh yeah. Yeah, usually like, you know, with each one it kind of things get a little watered down sometimes in terms of like just how stern parents can be.
1: Yeah. They mean well. I love my parents. I need to call my mom. <laughs>
0: So, uh, so there's there she is. She's kind of like the baby of the family, and she gets to go to art museums. She would go with her dad. Nice. uh, Go horseback riding. You know, get to go to the beach. She had like a again like a fairly privileged upbringing. So from her her education, she was able to go to a school of industrial art, like a high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that, that really opened up the availability of art classes that she was really into as a kid. And from that, she was able to earn a scholarship to go to the Pennsylvania Museum of School and Industrial Arts, which is now University of the Arts, which is the school that I went to, and graduated from, and am paying student loans for.
1: So yay, mm-hmm. U Arts. What was it the, the um, unofficial mascot is like a unicorn?
0: Is a unicorn, yeah. <laughs> And we are technically undefeated from the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. There's one football game played between the two universities, and we won.
1: The one football game?
0: (laughs) Just one. Just one. So I think we're technically undefeated since, like, 1876.
1: Oh, my God. Some awkward, gawky art kids trying to play football.
0: One game. Over a hundred years ago, so you can see how well it went.
1: That's okay. I never went to my university's like football games because I was never yeah. Interested. But that
0: was such a much larger university. That was sports was so much more of a thing for you.
1: Yeah, it was just. I mean, I try to stay as far away from it as possible. But it was. It was. It was the point where my dad was like, "What do you mean you've never been to one of their games?" And I'm like, "I, I don't even live on campus. Like, I'm good." I'm okay. Yeah, like your
0: school had like an actual stadium. We yeah. to date, still don't even have like a student gym or anything.
1: Oh, no. So very
0: very different accommodations. <laughs> so she got scholarship and go to, to what is now University of the Arts. And at this point, so after the Civil War, industrial art training really opened up to women. So they were able to enroll and kind of participate in these programs. But there were still some gender and barriers that they had to deal with. Doing something like life drawing or sculpting that was still a big issue because they didn't want women to see a nude man
1: oh oh no
0: yeah and that's something that's kind of you know been pretty systematic um in western art history is that that's one of the biggest barriers for female artists is that often you don't have the access to develop your craft how are you going to get better doing life drawing and drawing the figure and the movements of the body to create let's say like a multi-panel or multi-figure panel, if you've never seen the entirety of the human body.
1: Yes. I mean, you know what
0: you look like naked, but, like, what does a man look like naked? If you've never seen that, how are you supposed to actually depict that?
1: It's definitely a curse, but also slightly a blessing, because I remember my art class, and I also remember, like, my mother's art class when she had to do it, too, And neither one of our models were pretty to look at. They were, it was not, not a person I wanted to see at all.
0: Well, yeah, but you still want to have the opportunity to see, you know, kind of all the different forms of the human body.
1: That's true. So at that point,
0: again, late 1800s, women are still kind of systematically steered away from certain art practices so they are pushed more towards the decorative arts so we're talking like pottery fibers jewelry making
1: that's annoying
0: yeah things like painting and sculpture those were still very much seen as masculine arts that you know that's what the men did the women went and like you know wove a pretty rug so things are going good for her you know she has a very comfortable Bringing really supportive family, going to college, just starting to get settled. It's 1897. She's 20, and her dad dies. Oh no. Yeah, and it it hits her hard. It's pretty shitty because they were really close growing up, and he's the one that really took her to like art museums and to see shows, and it was a really big you know moral support growing up. Oh no. So that hit her kind of hard. At the same time, she earns her first year certificate. But it, it takes her a little bit to kind of get back into the flow of things. And the content of her work, because she is starting some sculpting at this point, is a little, a little dark. But understandably, if you just lost one of the most important people in your life, eh, things might be a little bit more on the the morbid side.
1: Right. You got to find some way to get all that.
0: Yeah. To, like, to like work through it. Yeah. So at this... Fairly, you know, early developmental stage in her artistic practice, kind of really a precursor to why she was called a sculptor of horrors. Because throughout her life, I mean, she deals with some really emotionally intense works that she depicts, and that's something she's consistently known for. So, Even though her dad's passed away, you know, she finishes school, she does well, so much so that a professor of hers, a sculptor professor, really insists to her mother that she should be able to study in Paris for two years. Hmm. She's, yeah, she's earned a scholarship to, like, help with that. Her mom's really hesitant because she's like, no, I want to keep her close, especially after, you know, at this point, the dad's passed away. But eventually, he's able to talk her mom into letting her go, and her mom and aunt financially support her so at the age of 22 in 1899 she gets to go to paris that's awesome yeah i mean sure you gotta go on a boat i'm not quite sure how long the voyage took from the u.s to europe i know she was seasick a good bit of it so i don't think she really enjoyed it but still it's so exciting you're 22 years old and you get to travel abroad by yourself for the first time so paris was really a, a big draw, a artistic hub, especially for a lot of American women, because it offered a lot of possibilities that the U.S. just didn't have. And I'm sure there was so much excitement for Mita to, to go there. Unfortunately, when she first arrived, still dealing with American racial bullshit. She had booked a room at the American Girls Art Club to stay initially before she, you know, really got settled. And so she, she comes in, she meets the owner, owner looks up and realizes she's like, Wait a minute, why didn't you tell me you're a black woman? What? Yeah, and Mito was essentially like, oh, I'm sorry, this is for American artists, and last time I checked, I'm an American woman artist. So, the yeah, uh, the owner essentially was like, look, you didn't tell me, and I think it's going to upset some southern women, so you can't stay here.
1: That's some bullshit.
0: Yeah, and, like, she had just gotten to Paris. Like, she didn't even have a place to stay yet. Like, that's where she was going to be staying. And right off the bat, they were like, mm, "Fuck you!" Like, how shitty is that? You literally crossed an ocean. You're in another continent, and you're still dealing with racist American assholes.
1: Yeah, that's such. Are you kidding? Welcome me? to France. What did, what did what did what did she do?
0: It had been set up that a friend, an artist of her, an artist friend of her uncle, uh, would help her get st- established, and you know, kind of keep an eye on her and help move things along because he was already living over there um she reached out to him and they were able to set something up in their short term and eventually she got her own apartment while she was staying in paris right but overall she had a really great time while she was there people they really accepted her and it wasn't an issue of like oh you're a black woman we don't want anything to do with you you know it wasn't the same type of racism that existed within the united states at the same time in the early 1900s she was enrolled in an academy and from that she actually got to work from nudes both men and women. Nice. Yeah. So fast forward a few years and over in Philly, I, they got to study them but they were still they were draped. Um but I mean the French they were like no like You need a good technical foundation, and if you don't know this, like, you're not going to learn. So she really, I think, had an amazing time taking advantage of what the city had to offer. I mean, just the amount of museums and public sculptures. Um, There's so much to see. I've never been, but I can just imagine just, um, you know, how much material there was for her to see and explore and to work with.
1: I mean, France is known for the art, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like, like Rome. Um, there's lots of, you know, big monumental public sculptures. Um, and always been a really rich creative cultural history to Paris. Right. And on top of that, she got to do this living by herself and being really independent. And at the time, women her age, they were expected to marry and settle down right after school. You know, if anything, you went to college to find a husband. Gross. And get married. Yeah. And to start making babies. Like, that was kind of the default formula.
1: That's um
0: so gross. So I, she was really able to kind of flex and develop, like, her own sense of independence. Um, and, of course, while she's there, she's, like, moving in all these different social circles and able to network. Mm-hmm. And through a painter friend of hers, she was recommended to Augustine Rodin. Oh. Who, oh. Y- yeah. Yeah. I, his most famous work – um, is the thinker, which the Philadelphia Museum of Art has a has a copy of outside. Um, yeah, so she was just casually recommended to Rodin, and this painter friend was like, "Hey, this woman does really great work. You should totally check her out and see what she can do." Like, you know, no big deal. Again, she's like in her early twenties, and this is this guy's considered one of the most influential you know, French sculptors of all time. So she goes, she shows her, she shows him some of her work um, and he was really impressed. You know, at the time, I think he had enough studio assistants uh, so he wasn't really looking for any more of those. Right. Uh, but he, he called her, he was like, you're a sculptor and your work is powerful.
1: Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, talk about
0: like the validation to receive from a figure like that
1: oh my god
0: and i mean she she was really inspired by that and that really like impacted her later on i mean she would still write about that experience and after that getting to know him um that kind of like upped her reputation and these like you know art circles and she was able to get you know, private gallery shows, like solo show from a, a prominent curator. And so it really, like, it financially secured her stay and I think really established herself as a, as a professional working sculptor.
1: That's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, so, like,
1: really big deal. Does she have to go back to America?
0: You know what? Through the entirety of my research, I just kept thinking, like, what if she just didn't go back? What if she had just stayed? Because there's a part of me that thinks, like, she just really would have gained the recognition during her lifetime that she deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, but she did go back. Mm. But before she went back, she also met another influential figure, um, aside from Rodin. The influential W.E.B. Du Bois.
1: Oh, hey. He is everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: man. I mean, he's going to pop up quite a bit. He was a really influential figure in her life. So... During this time in history, expos were a really big thing, you know, held in different cities. And they were these international organiz- or events that really offered a chance for countries to showcase, you know, their technological advancements, their creative advancements. And so while she was in France, there was the 1900 Paris Exposition, Universelle, And so Du Bois was working with a man Calloway and also Murray, and they were designing their own American Negro exhibit for the Palace of Social Economy at the U.S. State's National Pavilion for that 1900 Paris exposition. So Du Bois was in Paris um, along with Calloway and Murray, and they were all there to create this exhibition to focus on the progress of Black Americans since reconstruction and just a quick rundown on reconstruction so that era took place between 1865 so end of civil war to 1877 uh, and it essentially dealt with the conflict of how to incorporate these newly freed slaves you know into american society um, okay. and also the integration of the 11 states who succeeded from the u.s so during this time we've got the 13th amendment in 65 abolishing slavery the 14th uh, in 68 establishing civil rights to all citizens, uh, you know, ensuring equal protection under the law, and the 15th um, in 1870, granting all men the right to vote regardless of race. The Reconstruction era kind of came to an end with the Compromise of 1877, and that's when troops were officially pulled out of the South. So Du Bois is really looking to, like, focus, um, you know, on the strides that African-Americans have made since then, since 1877. Fuller met Calloway. She was asked to repair some works brought over for the show, um, some sculptures that had gotten a little bit damaged. And they were super impressed with the work that she did. So from that, she got to go to the expo with them, with Calloway and his wife and with Du Bois. And they also went to the theater and they went to dinner and they did studio visits. And I think she probably had a great time meeting other African-American people in Paris. and just really got to, you know, enjoy the town for what it was worth and not really facing the discrimination that they would have faced, like, in New York City or in San Francisco or any other, you know, big city in the U.S. Right.
1: I didn't Um, know that racism wasn't rampant in, like, France at that time.
0: I mean, it's culturally just just very different um i mean as u.s like we've got a really shit history of racial tension so i mean that's why there was such a draw for women to go over to you know paris and to rome because when they weren't facing as many sexist barriers that Mm -hmm. you know we've got here in the u.s but also you know for people who weren't white it was a little easier to you know come by work and education and to just you know be appreciated for who you are Rather than being seen for, like, you know, your color of your skin first and that defining, you know, what you're capable of. Right. So they really got to know one another. And he even had some advice from her. I've got Du Bois quoted as saying, you should make specialty of Negro types. And she said, I told him I did not believe I would so specialize, but I considered the advice well meant. Du Bois, you know, gives her this advice. And she was, you know, kind of dismissive. Of it and i totally get it because there she is she's in france I, she can make whatever she wants it's all about finding like her personal voice and the color that she happens to be like is irrelevant to the work that she's making in paris at the time like that's not a big factor in terms of what she's capable of and not a defining aspect of her narrative so after four years in france Mita returns to philly in 1903 and she's 27 and right away sets up a studio on camac street um and that's Hmm. a little area yeah you might be familiar with it um the philadelphia sketch club is there that's the oldest club for artists they've been around since 1860 and then to counter that is the plastic club because the sketch club at first was all men So they were an all-women organization, and they were founded in 1897 uh, and became co-ed in 1991. So a very creative, you know, pocket of the city. And during this time, she takes classes at, you know, what is now the University of the Arts. She won a first prize for a ceramic vessel in 1903. That's when the ceramic program was officially started at the school, which I care about because I graduated for ceramics. And she was also doing classes at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, also known as PAFA, and the oldest art school in the world. Well, in the U.S., not in the world, in the U.S. So so she's taking classes at um, PAFA, and she's exhibiting her work, and it's shown with works of Mary Cassatt and Thomas Eakins, so and those are some pretty big artists. Um, so she's, she's doing good. But there is a shift during this period in terms of her content. I think it might have to do that she potentially had fewer artistic options here in the U.S. compared to what she had just been immersed in in Paris. Um, I mean, it it could be just because you know she was back in the city, even though she'd grown up there. She's still doing networking in art circles, or it could be the slate racial and sexist discrimination that you know might have potentially limited her opportunities.
1: Mm. Who's I'm to go say? With a second one
0: maybe. I mean, again, we're still in the early, you know, 1900s, like 1905, 1906 or so. Um, but I mean, bless her. She's still working. She's still hustling. She's got her studio. Like she's she's moving forward. And a big change comes in 1907 for the Jamestown Tercentennial Exposition, um, in which she was commissioned to do a multi-figure di- uh, dioramas. And Essentially, she created various scenes representing the growth and refinement of African-Americans in the U.S. since being brought over for slavery. Her her friend Calloway that she met in Paris, he's the one who suggested her for the position. And from this, she was the first black woman to receive a federal commission. Oh. Now, unfortunately, yeah, like, this is 1907. Unfortunately, the majority – by majority, I mean all – of the dioramas she created, were destroyed. So we do have some pictures of them. They're not the best quality. But from this, uh, she made $1,800, which, adjusted for inflation, is over $47,000.
1: What? What? Yeah. That's insane.
0: It's a shit ton of money.
1: Good for her.
0: So, yeah, things might not have been as hot in terms of coming back to Philly and, like, making work. But, like, right. she's obviously still doing very good in her professional career. Right. And it, and it goes back to the people she met and got to know in Paris. And, you know, calories important. Du Bois is going to be very important later on. Uh, those were very important friendships that she forged, you know, in her early 20s. So up to this point, she's kind of been exploring work with the individual psyche. Kind of loosely modeled, very energetic sculpting. The size varied, usually it was fairly small, you know, working in clay and wax and the majority of her work being painted plaster. There's a few bronzes here and there. So because the majority of her work was in painted plaster, unfortunately it didn't really survive. But in terms of the emotional content, she addressed some very kind of like dark tones and that's what earned her the nickname Sculptor of Horrors. Now, how she went about sculpting was very similar to Rodin. Um, it's very like a motive approach to depicting the human figure. She says herself, she sculpts the soul as opposed to the figure. So she's much more interested in how her work feels than being like, you know, tightly rendered Absolutely detailed sculptures. Right. And with her work, The Dioramas, from 1907, um, it's the first time that she deals with African-American subjects as her, as her main theme. And it's also a precursor to some of the set and design work she'll later do. Now, she grew up during the progressive era. And essentially, that's from the late 1800s to the, the 1920s. And it really established a framework for the modern U.S. Now, essentially, you've got these different responses to economic and social evolutions occurring during this time. We've got rapid urbanization and industrialization going on in the late 19th century. Um, and there, there kind of became a separation between the lives of people living in cities and living in more rural areas. I mean, for people in cities, it's great. You've got like indoor plumbing and heating and, you know, running water. But for people in rural areas, you've got mechanization occurring. So farmers have more to compete with and, you know, financially they're taking a hit. So we've got that going on. And also there's this movement to kind of address things like poverty and poor health and violence and greed and class warfare. And you've essentially got you know, these college educated, you know, city people who are trying to use the government as a tool for change. Good steps, again, towards, you know, modernizing the United States, like as we know it today and laying that groundwork. So this is all well and good. But at the same time, in 1896, we've got the Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal laws being established by the Supreme Court. And at this time, Mita's 19 years old. Um, You know, this this is what she's living with. This is what she's coming of age in. And there's this whole kind of distinct otherness to African-Americans. You know, in 1963, uh, an article writer, James Baldwin, puts it, quote, is the necessity of the American white man to find a way of living with the Negro in order to be able to live with himself. You know, the white man protecting his identity, uh, while the black man needs to create his own. And Du Bois also addresses this on the kind of duality in his work, you know, asserting that the social, political, and economic disenfranchisement of a race from systematic racism, um, you know, has not, been addressed still and it kind of goes back you know, no no it obviously still very much an issue and it kind of goes back to this like genteel performance you know the idea that there's this demand for african americans to be accepted through the white ideas of what is acceptable now at the same time we've got some really bad stereotypes of african americans and it <laughs> they're pretty fucking rough um so one thing that was really popular during this time kind of started in the early 1800s the Minstrel Show, um, like a pop popular variety entertainment. Yeah. Do you, do you know that much about them?
1: I know a bit.
0: I I had no background on this. So potentially the king asshole of The Minstrel Show um, is Thomas Dartmouth Rice. He toured the United States and Great Britain, um, all while playing a Jim Crow character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of started, performed in blackface as an elderly black man. And, uh, you know, as you might have guessed, that name came to characterize the anti-black laws in the South, kind of post-reconstructive era. You know, in 1883, the Supreme Court, it finds that, uh, you know, this the 14th Amendment only applies to government. And that gave a license to private businesses and organizations to just fucking discriminate anyone and everything. Also, from this time, we get... St- Stereotypical, you know, associations with watermelon, which I I didn't know this. So that was a crop that freed slaves grew, um, and for a bit it was a symbol of economic independence. And surprise, oh. yeah, turned against them. Um, and we've also got stereotypes like Mammy and Uncle Tom, so very super pervasive and public, you know, just stereotypes. Of African Americans, you know these these white people's perceptions of them, and Mita she uses her art to kind of combat these and change public perception of what African Americans are capable of, and her art becomes really rich in kind of combating all that racist bullshit. Now going back to about 1910, she gets married. Sorry, in 1909. And it's a little bit unusual because at this point she's 32 years old and the medium marrying age for a woman was 21. So for that, I think it really touches on her being in Paris and really experiencing her own independence that at this point she's back in the States. She, you know, considering getting married, she's doing it on her own terms, not necessarily like rushed into it. Cause like we were talking about earlier, you know, go to college, find a husband, get married, and make some babies. She's got some other priorities. So she marries a Solomon C. Fuller, a graduate of the Boston University School of Medicine. He was America's first black psychiatrist um, and best known for his work on dementia and the author of several papers um, on Alzheimer's too. So with his work being in Boston, they moved out outside of the city he was resident and director of the pathology lab at the Westboro state hospital and neurologist at massachusetts states hospital um so she's kind of moving from her family of you know being upper middle class and with him outside of boston still very much maintaining that upper middle class status and when they moved outside of boston you know surprise the wealthy white neighbors didn't really like it and really objected to them building a house and moving in um Now, things did settle down a little bit because the couple, they were really involved in the community, uh, in the church. And so I think that kind of helped integrate them a little bit more, but I mean, she still dealt with that, you know, that backlash because it was a majority white neighborhood that she was living in. Now, on top of being in a new town, new neighbors, new everything away from your family, away from your, you know, the studio that you've known at the age of 33 in 1910, the warehouse in philly containing all her work well the majority of her work like burns down no everything's gone oh no yeah like i can't imagine how gutted she must have felt like she had everything in storage you know was planning to move it up to boston um again it's 1910 so you can't just rent like a u-haul so it was gonna take a little bit of time and just gone that's like 16 years worth of her Jesus stuff.
1: Christ.
0: Yeah. Her work from college, her work from Paris, um, just gone. Um, and it, I mean, it, it hit her hard. So in the following years, over six years, she has three boys. And she kind of had this hard transition into a new role. So from her husband, like, she was expected to be a wife, to be the mother, to be a homemaker, you know, to fulfill essentially all the high society expectations of a woman. And... He kind of, he wanted her to do nothing with her, her art. Like, oh. he was, he was not supportive of her artistic practice, like, at all. No. So, on top of, like, losing up to that point, essentially her life's work, you know, she's, she's having kids and, like, he doesn't want her to do any art making, like, at all. Fuck that I know things were really different in that time, but, like, there's no way in hell I could be with someone who just so disregards, you know, such an important component of someone's life.
1: Yeah, Um, no. No, leave him. Leave him now.
0: Yeah, no, so extremely problematic, and so I imagine really hard on her for having to suddenly just be a mom, a wife, and not being an artist and losing her work on top of that. So went through a bit of depression, you know, as as you might, might guess. But in 1913, Du Bois comes along and is like, hey, we're having the National Emancipation exposition it's celebrating the 50th anniversary anniversary um you should totally make a sculpture to go with it and he initially s- suggested that she re-sculpt a piece titled man eating his own heart um oh, wow i I, yeah, I like sculptor of horrors like she's dealing with some really kind of intense emotions and i think that was just a little too much for her and she used it as an opportunity to make new work um, so from this, she created an eight foot tall piece of three figures originally in plaster. And then later on in 1891, it was cast in bronze and uh, is now displayed at the Harriet Tubman Park in Boston. Um, and she described it as so, quote, I represented the race by a male and a female figure standing under a tree, the branches of which are the fingers of fate grasping at them to draw them back into the fateful clutches of hatred. There is also humanity weeping open. Over her suddenly freed children, who, beneath the Garnet fingers of fate, step forth into the world unafraid. So, she she really deals with some, you know, kind of heavy uh, emotional components to her work. Um, She's not really interested in making something that looks pretty. So, from this, it kind of really energized her into getting back into her creative practice. Um, And she built a studio in secret, and only when it was done did she reveal to her family, like what she did and yeah i get this so at first her husband was like really upset that she made a studio fuck that guy i know but i mean eventually he came around to it because she built it like like on the side of a lake a little away from their property so she had to manage the business aspect of it and getting it built and the you know property and stuff and so eventually it was like all right you know i guess if you can handle all that stuff like you can do your art like oh gee thanks husband um So we've got shifting themes in her work kind of at this time. So up to 1920, I mean, her work also reflects kind of the anxiety of a world at war. And it it also deals with some some anti-lynching. One really powerful piece she made was in uh, 1919 um, about an event that occurred in 1918. Uh, At this point, she's 41. A woman named Mary Turner, she, she was lynched. Her husband had been lynched. She publicly condemned it, and for that she was lynched herself, hung upside down from a tree, killing her and her unborn child. Oh shit! Yeah, and Mita, you know, read about it, and it just impacted her so. You know, she felt compelled. She's like, "I need to make, I need to make a work about this," and so she did. And she's one of the first to really create a piece in response to lynching and just you know how how horrible, you know, it was. So, she's directly confronting with realities of African Americans, um, you know, that for the most part, her privilege shields her from. Um, but in doing so, I mean, she's creating these works that, you know, open up dialogue to the pretty heavy systematic oppression of African Americans that unfortunately still exist. Um, now, a third significant Exposition that she contributed to was in 1921, America's Making Exposition. And our boy Du Bois is, you know, back in the mix, commissioning her for a piece. And from this, she makes one of her most well known works called Ethiopia. Now, what she made very a little bit in terms of what he commissioned, but from it, she created a bronze statue of a woman in royal attire, kind of similar to ancient Egyptians. And when she sculpted it, Ethiopia was the only African country to resist Western imperialists at this time. So in terms of the work she wrote, here was a group who had once made history and now after a long sleep was awakening gradually unwinding the bandages of its mummified past and looking out on life again, expectant but unafraid and with at least a graceful gesture. And so that's what she embodies in in her sculpture. Now, at the time... The Harlem Renaissance is just starting to kick off in the 1920s, um, and she was really a precursor to that. And the Harlem Renaissance was a mass movement really emphasizing the intellectual and creative skills of African-Americans starting in the 1920s in Harlem, New York City. And it was by no means confined to that area and really spread, you know, across the country. And one thing that also influenced it that we touched on in the very first episode was primitive art. So at this time, you've got all these, like, Western artists looking at art of, like, non-white cultures and being like, hey, this is pretty cool. And so from that, we've got African Amer- African Americans kind of claiming ownership over their own cultural histories, you know, and asserting that through their, their current day contributions. Which, I mean, I thought was pretty nice because we talked about that a little bit of all these white guys going like, hey, it looks pretty cool. I'm going to paint something about that. <laughs> You know, and completely taking it culturally like out of context and, you know, just going after it because it looks pretty, you know, oh, I like the colors. Completely disregarding the historical context and significance of it. So for that, Mina you know, was pretty important because, and she was just the woman working by herself, you know, creating these really powerful works that really kind of furthered African-American identities in visual art and sculpture, you know, before there's this whole movement of people collectively doing that. So up to 1950, she's not only sculpting, but she's also creating sets and designs for church productions because um, she she really gets into her church and uh, starts depicting religious subject matter. And outside of her creative practice, she's also involved in women's clubs and her church. However, in 1940, her husband starts going blind and she stops working in 1950 to care for him. And at the age of 76, her husband passes away in 1953. Kind of shady because not long after this, she contracts tuberculosis, which seems to be a recurring theme.
1: God damn it,
0: tuberculosis. I know. In these first few episodes of ours. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, though, at this point, a treatment had been discovered. But she was, it still took her two years to recover. She was in a sanatorium. So, I mean, obviously, it's a little hard to sculpt in a setting like that. But she developed a passion for poetry that remained with her the rest of her life. Now, she recovers. And at the age of 79, in 1956, she goes back into sculpting. And she's, you know, received quite numerous commissions. You know, she was requested to do work for the National Council of Negro Women in D.C., the Palmer Institute, um, which is a school in North Carolina, and it was founded as a school just for African American kids, um, and also local organizations within her, within her town, like the hospital her husband worked at and the local library. So while her commissions are not quite as monumental of you know contemporary male artists of the day, it just kind of reflects like the lack of opportunity. It's not only African Americans but African American women during that time. and we're still dealing with that today. Now, in 1961, at the age of 84, her work was honored in New Vistas in American Art at Howard University, which is great, kind of a few decades after the fact, but still amazing. And in 1862, at the age of 85, uh, she was awarded an honorary degree of letters from Livingston College in North Carolina. Now, one of the last really kind of potent work she made. It was in her later years in like 87, uh, 1964. She created a crucifixion, kind of as tribute to the four girls killed in the 1963 Birmingham, Alabama church bombing. As she's gotten older, you know, she really kind of also starts to creep into, um, you know, during work dealing with civil rights, you know, in the early 60s. Um, also did some work in tribute to, you know, the people who worked with Martha Luther King. And at the age of, of 91, in 1968 she she passes away she dies um
1: a good long life
0: yeah and it's impressive that you know up until her late 80s like almost 90 like she was still sculpting and still making very um culturally relevant social work um like i mean she slowed down a little bit to you know care for her family but you know kept on going now, like I mentioned, unfortunately, like the fragile material she typically worked in um, means there's not that many surviving works of hers. Right. Um, and so, it, you know, there's an incomplete collection, you know, of her work today. And like I mentioned, working as just an individual, that was really significant. Because it's not like she was working with a group of artists or a collective, you know, all working with the same theme. She was just doing this by herself in her studio that she had to build in secret in Massachusetts. So while decades earlier, she'd really dismissed the idea that Du Bois had proposed to her. Um, it's, it's really been amazing to see the progress of her heart and how the progress of her art and how she really came to encapsulize um, the request that Du Bois made of her and really specializing in African-American identity. Um, so she's been someone great to learn about and, you know, definitely still underappreciated today. And that's why I wanted to uh, to do her as this episode, as uh, as my favorite feminist.
1: I'm just mad she had to make a secret fucking studio. Uh, I know, I know. Um, she stayed with him.
0: So it was reading little things like that that made me wonder, like, how would have things been different if she just stayed in France? Fucking... If she had fallen for a Frenchman instead and decided to stay in Paris and to work there, I I think, you know, very likely she would have had a much different, much more accelerated kind of art trajectory in terms of her work and development and how she would have been, uh, you know, received and potentially the commissions she would have gotten for it.
1: But also, Um, if she had stayed in France, she wouldn't have had... She wouldn't have have the experiences she had in in the united states where she made those pieces that led to i i think
0: the the narrative of the work she would have created would have been very different um because she wouldn't have been placed back into a a context in which it's not a matter of oh she's a sculptor it's oh she's an african-american woman sculptor And I feel like that reception she received in the U.S. definitely, you know, is what led to the influence of her changing kind of themes within her work.
1: Um, A response to the shitty response to her.
0: Yeah. And, you know, with those expos that she did work for, uh, I mean, again, very important the connection she made in Paris um, with Du Bois and Calloway um, because those were men who helped her like really helped push her forward. Um, I mean, getting like that first federally funded commission, um, and then creating the work like Ethiopia, um, really helped get her work out in front of the public at the time. Um, as always, there'll be, you know, kind of images, uh, on the show notes. You can check out the type of work that she did. Um, no picture of man eating his own heart, unfortunately. Uh, but you can check out Ethiopia and some of the other work that, uh, has survived today.
1: That's very sad because while you were telling me about it, I was Googling and I couldn't find it. And then you told me that it didn't survive. And I was like, Oh. I wish that one would have been a good one to see.
0: Yeah, like hearing just how little of what our work has survived, um, the fire in nineteen ten, um, just makes me want to go in and make sure I've super documented all of my work.
1: Oh yeah. So, oh, so that I'm I, surprised in the unfortunate you event now. something
0: something <laughs> happens. Yeah. You know, it's up there on the cloud, or it's it's somewhere that I can access it. That you know, it wouldn't be completely devastating of a loss, right? But you know, with a good bit of my work being ceramic, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the ashes there's you know a surviving head or two that have made it through the fire.
1: <laughs> my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny.
0: Yeah, so what do you what do you have for us this week?
1: Okay. My foot is asleep.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. I'm sure everyone would like to hear about that.
1: Uh, I'm also mm-hmm. sitting on a
0: toolbox for those who would like to imagine what I'm doing right now.
1: I am cramped in a very small closet. There's foam and uh kitty cloth. There are cats on my on the cloth that I use to keep reverberations and acoustics down so that's fun and i am i'm
0: essentially in a closet uh blanket fort <laughs> it is no the inner four-year-old to me is very happy with this
1: oh man i mean i'm, I'm not gonna lie aside from the from the need to like sit cross-legged and eventually have my foot fall asleep this is not a bad setup for my first podcast closet
0: and the kitty cat print looks cute it does look really cute
1: uh anyway (laughs) i'm gonna bring you mammy phipps Clark. She was born April eighteenth, 1917, in Hot Springs, Arkansas. So her dad, Harold Phipps, was a physician, and her mother, Katie Florence Phipps, was a homemaker, but she was, like, always actively involved in her husband's medical practice, so they were kind of, like, a team. Um, And despite growing up in the early 1900s as an African-American female, she actually described her childhood as, like, comfortable. Um... So I think there's like a quote, and it says, How can I tell you I had a happy childhood? I enjoyed everything. Uh, Now, by objective standards, I guess you would say it was just an average family, but it was a very privileged childhood. So she was comfortable, um, and she, I guess, having that kind of like upbringing, had her graduate school early and was offered scholarships to two different universities, um, and she chose... Howard University in DC and she like started off as a math major but she met like her husband there her future husband and he was Mm -hmm. he was getting a master's in psychology so he was like hey you like children you should really think about switching over to being a psychologist because I think you'd be a really good developmental psychologist and she was like uh sure I guess so I think she continued To graduate magna cum laude from Howard. Nice. And then she immediately enrolled in the graduate psychology program.
0: What year did she graduate with her her undergraduate degree?
1: 1938. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, she immediately enrolled in a graduate psychology program. And her master's thesis was on the development of the self-awareness in African-American children. So what is self-awareness? What do we mean by that um, as far as, like, psychological terms? It's often defined in terms of being able to actively engage in reflective awareness. So the most primitive form is being able to recognize yourself in a mirror. Um, so you remember when I had my bearded dragon, Trixie?
0: hmm
1: And how she would, like, walk outside of her cage, and then she would pass, like, the mirror, the long way mirror that I had standing up. Mm -hmm. Right? And then she would lose her shit.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she'd like puff up and get like all darker on, you know, her neck.
1: Because she didn't know that that was her. She thought it was another bearded dragon. Mm -hmm. And she would attack the mirror and I would have to like pick up this angry dragon (laughs) and put her back in her space, give her a little time out. It's because a lot of mammals or reptiles, a lot of animals don't have that self-awareness. So that kind of like separates us from other animals. So you're going to see self-awareness in like primates um, Mm -hmm. and you're going to see them obviously in humans um, and it starts between 12 to 18 months of age. So Phipps took that concept of self-awareness one step further. Uh, So her thesis The Development of Consciousness of Self in African American Preschool Children uh, it didn't just study self-awareness, it studied race consciousness. So How early is a child conscious of what race they belong to? And in Phipps' case, how that affected the children once they self-identified. So she concluded that children became aware of their race by four or five years of age. And this conclusion that she had, it will eventually evolve into what is known as the doll test. Mm -hmm. She moves on to Columbia University in New York to obtain her PhD because she's awesome. Nice. Yep. They got their doctorate, and actually the clerks were the first African-Americans to obtain their doctoral degree in psychology from Columbia University. And she, this is 1943, she and her husband took two identical dolls, painted one brown, because black dolls weren't manufactured then, and then placed them in front of 250 African-American children. And then they asked these children a series of questions that assessed racial identification and preferences. So, they asked questions like, Give me the doll that you like to play with or like best. Give me the doll that is a nice doll. Give me the doll that looks bad. Give me the doll that is a nice color. Um, Things like. And is this
0: during like the mid 40s? 1943.
1: three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, give me the doll that looks like a colored child. Give me the doll that looks like you. So that last one, give me the doll that looks like you. It upset a lot of children when they were asked that. They like, yeah, it like from what I understand, some children started crying when they pointed at the doll. So, every answer favored the white doll. Um, the tests were done in 1943, but the Clarks didn't publish until 1947. So, the theory is that the findings upset them and they had to like take a minute to digest that, yeah, (laughs) which just took four years to digest, which I totally understand. Um, The big to-do about these tests were that they were later used in Brown versus Board of Education in 1957, and we all know that trial. Um, Yeah, no, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big one. It essentially overturned that nasty idea of separate but equal. Um, So it was... The doll test was used to counter the idea that segregation was in fact separate but equal and therefore okay. So Thurgood Marshall asked the clerks to recreate the study in front of the courtroom. And these children, again, they preferred the white dolls. Um, And it was argued that by segregating these children, they created a sense of inferiority that started very early in their childhood and that it would continue to follow them throughout their lives. So not even close to, like, separate but equal. You know what I mean? How did how did they get involved in the
0: the lawsuit to begin with?
1: Oh Thurgood Marshall like reached out to them because he knew of the test and they were like, I need you to recreate this for me.
0: Okay. So they were already they were well known in the, the psychology community then. Right. For that work.
1: Right. She was getting her PhD, like he was he was a psychologist in New York City so they they knew. Um, okay. So there have been countless recreations of the study to assert that the way African American youth self identifies and the prejudices that come with that self identification is still very present today. So actually, Anderson Cooper uh, did a segment on a recreation in 2010 for CNN with like not just two colors but five skin tones, uh, and it was like a pilot study done by another child psychologist, African American child psychologist. A University of Chicago professor, Margaret Beal Spencer, and her study tested 133 children, uh, two different age groups, ages 4 to 5 and 9 to 10. So there's actually like a little quote that I took from the article. It says, since this is not a pilot study and not a fully funded scientific study, the sample size and race selection were limited. But according to Spencer, it was satisfactory to yield conclusive results. So we're still seeing a trend Unfortunately, um, and I can. I think we can. You can we attach like a a YouTube video. Like, is that are we stepping over some lines?
0: Uh, no, we can include a link to it. I think if we were to embed it, it would be another issue. But gotcha. if Let's you want to say, we'll include that in the show notes. Let's a link to it. Go for it. Yeah.
1: But yeah. Regardless, the answers were still very much the same as they were in 1943. So after that particular trial, and after her PhD, Clark uh, had to find the next thing, and it wasn't exactly a job as a psychologist, so according to her, no one wanted to hire her. The places that did hire her were, like, shit jobs that she didn't like, so she didn't find a job as a psychologist, but she eventually found a job as a counselor at the Riverdale Home for Children in New York. Um, so she did, like, psych tests and counseling on homeless African-American girls. Uh, and it was here that she realized how very little resources Black and minority youth in the city had because she, I guess she, oh, there's a quote. I put a quote. So the quote is, I think Riverdale had a profound effect on me because I was never aware that there were that many children who were just turned out um, or whose parents had just left them so to speak so again she mm-hmm. grew up with a family with a mom and a dad and she wasn't quite aware that this was a real issue and that there were like homeless children on the street it so it sounded like working with this population really created a shift in how
0: she viewed racism and its impact on people
1: oh no she knew oh she knew what racism had even like before like when she was in like school when she got her master's and her phd she was working on yeah the self-identification of um like these children
0: mm-hmm.
1: um so she understood that there was an issue um but i think she used that understanding to create positivity in the area that she was living in so she saw the anger and frustration and hardships that New York's youth had to deal with. So in in response to the lack of resources that they had, because that was what her eye-opened was, it wasn't that there was, like, institutionalized racism. It was that there were really no resources for these children. So in response to that, she opened the Northside Center for Child Development in Harlem. uh, And this was in 1946. It became one of the, the first centers that provided complete psycho- like psychological services for behavioral and emotional problems. Uh, and it provided some educational programs for the children and their parents. We have a link to their website because they're still thriving, and they offer uh, clinics during school uh, hours, home-based crisis intervention programs, special needs prevention, so like services for abused children, project care for families with substance abuse, Creative arts therapy programs, early education programs, tutoring, summer day camp, libraries, after-school arts, tech center, karate, chess, and, like, music. Like, they have so many programs for these children to, like, get off the streets and learn something and get a skill and, you know, just something that they didn't have from their from their schools um, and sometimes even from their parents. Mm -hmm. So she served as the director of the Northside Center from 1946 to 1979. Uh, And then she also helped with the Harlem Youth Opportunities Unlimited Project. So it's an American social activism organization. And they increase opportunities in education and employment for young African Americans in Harlem. Uh, Or they did, because I don't think they're a thing now. I think they were a thing uh, but it was designed to teach residents of Harlem how to also work with, like, municipal agencies. So, like, kind of how to work the system, too. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the director of the Harlem Youth Opportunities, let me, let me know if this rings a bell, Cyril DeGrasse Tyson, Neil DeGrasse Tyson's dad. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I thought that was really fucking cool. <laughs> so like they they like all work together and that's a really cool history. So Clark died August eleventh, nineteen eighty three, from cancer. So that's four years after she retired as the director of the Northside Center. Uh, mm-hmm. and then she she received a Candace Award for Humanitarianism from the National Coalition of Hundred Black Women her work influenced like, children who, like, were abuse victims and Mm -hmm. living on the streets and they, like, her her Northside Center was, like, her crowning glory. Like, yeah, she had her like, she had her doll test, but Northside was her baby. And it's still thriving today. Like, it's still Mm -hmm offers like tons of programs to children in need um so like i feel like that was her influence
0: yeah and her passion
1: yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. okay
0: well thank you for joining us for another episode of my favorite feminist uh milana if people are interested to see the show notes or social media where can they check us out
1: so our website is myfavoritefeminist.com. We also have a Facebook and an Instagram also both under My Favorite Feminist. If you want to talk to us, if you want to give us ideas, thoughts, feedback, um, you can either email us at info at myfavoritefeminist.com. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. So you can go on there, give us a rating, uh, and then leave some comments below as well. And in the comment sections, you can let us know, what is the worst Valentine's Day gift you've ever received? How about you, Megan? I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Oh. Oh, There's one year
0: I got both a chocolate set of Godiva and a fancy Belgian waffle iron for Valentine's Day. That's the best Valentine's Day you've received. Yeah, I thought they were both for my grandma, but it turns out it was just the waffle iron, and it was just a coincidence that it came on Valentine's Day. Okay. Well, I was asking your worst one. I know. I can't think of the worst one because I terribly I think don't. I
1: can think of your worst one, if I'm being honest. Oh, yeah. What's that? Do, do you remember that art gift when we were 17? The eyeballs. Not the eyeball. It Wait had, a minute. It had razors. <laughs>
0: Yes. What was it?
1: <laughs> it was... All right, we're gonna add all this shit out. What? What? What was it? it? The only other person you've ever dated in your life. I. What? That's not what I'm asking. Okay. Wait. I just remember okay. the razor blades. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm.
0: That brings went. up so many questions as to <laughs> who I get romantically involved with. <laughs> Wow, I totally forgot about that. What was the worst Valentine's gift that you've ever received?
1: Oh, the guys I date know I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. Yeah, that's so they good. don't get me shit, good. and I'm good with that. Good. There, there was one time that one did get me something, and it was actually really sweet. Uh, because I was still a photographer at the time, so he got me like a lens for my DSLR. Oh, that's, that's fancy. That was very fancy. You took me out to yeah. a very fancy place. So but I can't think of the worst one. Because most of them they know, like I tell them, Don't give me anything. I don't I don't yeah. want anything. I'm not getting you anything like mm-hmm. But yeah. Anyway. Alright. Well let us know. Thanks for listening, guys.
0: Until next week, have a good one. Bye.